Romans 3, 19 to 31. Things were not going well at all. Actually, that's an understatement. The truth is that the kingdom was facing a crisis of national, no, even international proportions. It all began when it became necessary for the good, wise, and just king to go on an extended journey to a distant land. Having no children of his own, he turned to his relatives to rule in his absence, as was the custom at that time. From among them, he selected the most worthy and able, and he gave them various responsibilities over his kingdom. He left them with few specific instructions because they had all known him. They had observed his example, and they knew well how he had ruled with fairness and integrity and human concern. He charged them to do likewise. It wasn't long after he left, though, that things began to unravel. As it turned out, the king's relatives did not possess the king's character, nor did they share his ideals. Neglecting their duties, they began instead to enjoy the prerogatives and the temptations of royalty. They took advantage of young women. They reappropriated state funds for their own personal use. And that was just the beginning. Before long, they were taking at will whatever they wanted from whoever they wanted. Girls, grain, garments, whatever they fancied, they just appropriated it for their own pleasure. They also started squabbling among themselves, jockeying for greater power and influence, and then even betraying one another to prison and to death. Of course, before long, the king began to hear news of all of this. He began to realize that he was no longer welcome at home, and that the kingdom that he loved and had carefully cared for was in ruins. However, he still had one ace up his sleeve, and that was that the army remained loyal to him. Yet he was loath to use it to destroy his own family for whom he cared. And so he took another course, hoping that he could yet redeem the situation. For the king was aware that there was a young couple among his relatives who, in the rivalry and the squabbling that was going on, had landed in a horrid dungeon And news had reached him that they had had somewhat of a change of heart there. So what did the king do? Well, sending a detachment of soldiers secretly in the night, he broke the couple out of their prison and brought them to himself. There, indeed, they they gratefully and contritely expressed a desire to be true and and faithful to him again and a willingness to, to represent his ways and his ideals in his kingdom. And so they and he entered together into a solemn agreement, a treaty, a covenant. The king went so far as to adopt them legally as his own son and daughter, to take counsel with them so as to share his heart and to teach them his ways that they might reign for and with him always. He put much of this in writing, um, outlining also the code by which they were to conduct themselves as rulers in his realm. They promised him that they would do their best to to represent him well, and he promised to be true to them as his own dear children. He would make sure that they had military protection and 
financial backing, and he granted them clemency, forgiving their past misdeeds and promising to favor them in the future. With this, he sent them back, reinstating them over a portion of his kingdom to help rule among the other relatives. He did this uh, in a way not so that he gave power, gave them power over the others, but rather that he hoped that by their example and influence, as they reflected the king's character, that they could influence some of the others and bring them back to the good. Well, how do you think it went? Not as the king had hoped, unfortunately. For while the young couple did well at first, it, it wasn't long until instead of influencing the others, they were being influenced by the others. And while the couple still took pride in the fact that they were the king's favored ones and that they had his will written in the book he had given them, they read it less and less and they followed it hardly at all. Meanwhile, rivalry among the various relatives continued until they were making alliances with foreign kingdoms and trying to uh, outmaneuver and overthrow their own kin. The king's favored couple by this point had joined right in. Now driven by a special sense of entitlement and self-righteousness, after all, they were the king's favored. They deserved to rule. This hypocritical behavior just made the other relatives more angry at the king. And before long, this couple landed again in some dark dungeon. The kingdom was in ruins. The people were suffering. His wayward children were imprisoned. And meanwhile, the king, though he heard of all this, still found it hard to authorize his army to destroy his own kin. But what else could he do to restore his kingdom? Well, as you may have figured out, that's a parable for what we read in the Old Testament. The king, of course, is God. His relatives are we human beings, the human race. The kingdom is creation itself. The favored couple that the king adopted as his own are the Jewish people who God chose for himself. He rescued them from their prison in Egypt. He taught them his ways, even giving them his book. Uh, and he sent them to represent him and to lead others back to him. And yet they failed in many ways, instead turning away from God again along with the other nations. And yet boasting in their special chosen status and in the book God had given him, though they didn't live by it. And so instead of protecting them as God had promised, we read in the Old Testament that God again allowed them to be taken into captivity by oppressive empires. And so God's kingdom was in ruins. And what was a good God to do? All of this is what Paul addresses in today's passage in Romans 3. Starting in verse 19, he's going to pick up the argument that he's been weaving from chapter 1. In chapter 1, which we looked at two weeks ago, Paul had showed how the Gentile peoples, the, the non-Jews, the rest of the world out there, had, had strayed from God. They'd engaged in a four-step downward slide, you may remember if you were here two weeks ago. First, they had removed God from the center. Second, as a result, they had become foolish in their thinking about God and everything else, too. Third, they had made idols, worshiping other things besides the true God. And fourth, finally, they'd engaged in wicked and immoral living. 
The Jews, on the other hand, Paul said to us in chapters 2 and 3 of Romans, had God's law, Greg reminded us about this last Sunday, they knew more clearly than the Gentiles who God was and how God wanted humanity to live. The Jews took pride in the law God had given them, but Paul pointed out, speaking as a Jew himself, they didn't wind up keeping the law God had given them. And so Paul had ended in chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, with a long list of verses from the Old Testament detailing all the ways people had turned away and rebelled against God. Greg read it for us last week. And then Paul concludes in verse 19 after that list. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that is the Jews. (laughs) In other words, the whole long sorry list in in verses 10 through 18 of Romans 3 is describing the Jews, not just the Gentiles. So that, Paul says, every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, Paul concludes in verse 20, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So everyone was in the same boat, Paul's saying. Not just the worldly Gentiles, but also the churchy Jews who had God's law because though they had it, they didn't keep it. As Paul says in verses 22 and 23, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Think of the glory that that could have been. If we humans had, had ruled faithfully, had stewarded faithfully God's creation, with the same justice and the same goodness and care that God did. But no, we fell short of that glory. We turned and went our own way. Whether having the law like the religious Jews or not having the law like the pagan Gentiles, we're all guilty, we're all accountable to the great king, Paul says. Meanwhile, the world's in turmoil. Wars wage on, oppressors oppress, victims are victimized. In the ever-eloquent words of Taylor Swift, players going to play, 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 play. Haters going to hate, hate, hate. Heartbreaker's going to break, break, break. Faker's going to fake, fake, fake. Relationships are broken. People suffer in loneliness and pain. People ignore God. They go their own way. and, And yet God lets it all go on. Though God is just, though God must do what is right, God in his tender mercy can't bring himself to punish us and to put an end to all of this. And so he delays and delays and delays. Hoping that we'll turn back to him, hoping that we'll have a change of heart. But all the while, the the suffering and the rebellion and the injustice continue. You see the problem God has? (laughs) It's the problem of his righteousness. That is, it's it's the problem of whether God is going to do what's right. And what is right? (laughs) Because on the one hand, God should come with his armies and put things right. Justice demands that he do so. And yet, on the other hand, God's mercy causes him to refrain from doing so. He cares for people. 
And what about his chosen people, the Jews, who he gave a special role in all of this? On the one hand, according to Paul, they have failed to be faithful to him, turning and siding too often with God's enemies, dragging God's name and reputation through the mud, and, and all the while thinking they have immunity as his chosen people. And so God must punish them, and to an extent, God did. In Paul's day, they were still suffering under Roman oppression. Yet, on the other hand, God had promised to save his chosen people, promised to forgive them, promised to favor them. How could God not be faithful to these promises? Yet, on still the other hand, how could God play favorites and bless those who had acted badly or worse than everyone else? Do you see the problem that God has on his hands? No wonder people question whether there's a God. If there's a God, why do bad things happen to good people? If there's a God, why is there so much suffering, so much injustice in the world? This world isn't fair. Things aren't being handled right down here. If there's a God, why doesn't God come and make things right? This is the problem of God's righteousness. And in today's passage, finally, Paul announces the good news that God has actually solved this problem. Listen to, to these, words in, these words in verse 21. But now, but now, finally, the turning point in Paul's letter, but now, at last, God has stepped in and taken action. But now, finally, there's some good news. But now, apart from the law, Paul says, the new thing that, that God has done doesn't have to do with the law, with the written commands that God gave his chosen people to teach them to live right because they had failed to keep the law. So now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been made known. The righteousness of God. Some translations say righteousness from God. But literally in Greek, it's righteousness of God that is made known. As we'll see shortly, there is righteousness from God involved. But I think what Paul is announcing is even bigger news than that. It's bigger because now, finally, God is demonstrating his own righteousness to the whole world. Finally, God is doing what is right. And actually, as it turns out, God has had been planning to do this all along. Paul says the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. That's the Old Testament. All the while, while, while it seemed God wasn't acting, wasn't doing what was right, God had been giving hints in this book that he was righteous and that when the right time came, he would demonstrate that righteousness, making everything right for all to see. So what is the new thing that God has now done to show, to demonstrate his righteousness? Verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Jesus Christ. That's the new thing that God has done to make things right. To anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, God gives his righteousness to them. So now we see that the righteous thing God has done is to give his righteousness 
to us through Jesus Christ. Now, I know Paul's being dense here. He's being complicated. But stick with me. I think it'll all become clear. I hope. (laughs) Because in Jesus Christ, we see how God solves all the problems of his righteousness. The problems of, of everyone turning away from God and, and God needing to punish us, but, but not wanting to punish us because he's merciful. And of his own chosen people who he, he promised to take care of and, and to use to save the world, but they rebelled against him and, and, and so he let them be taken captive and yet he'd promised to save them so, um, so he couldn't let them stay captive and, and yet that wouldn't be fair to save them either because what about all the other people who had acted just as badly as them and so in his justice, he has to punish his people but, but he doesn't want to punish them because he loves them. How does Christ fix all of this mess? Well, in verses 24 and 25, Paul gives us three images to explain how Christ makes all of this right. All three of these images were common in Paul's day. The first has to do with the law court. The second has to do with the slave market. The third has to do with the religious temple. Let's look at the three. First, the law court, the halls of justice. This is the main image that that Paul uses because the problem of God's righteousness is the main problem this whole passage is about. And by the way, this doesn't come through in the English, but, but in the Greek, Paul's writing in righteousness and justice are the same Greek word. And justify literally means to declare righteous. So in in Greek, righteous and righteousness and just and justice and justify, it's all the same word group, the same concept in Greek. It's all a matter of God expressing his righteousness, God doing what's right, God making wrongs right, doing justice in the world. And Paul says, God has made things right. God has brought about justice through Jesus Christ. How has God done it? Verse 24, by justifying us freely by his grace. By justifying us, by declaring us righteous. God has expressed his own righteousness by providing for our righteousness. Let me say that again. God has expressed his own righteousness by providing for our righteousness. Let me explain. This justifying, this declaring righteous, happens when we stand before the law court of heaven. God is the plaintiff who claims that we have rebelled against him. We've broken his laws. We've we've broken the relationship between him and us. We are not righteous. We are not in a right relationship with God. Yet, because there's no higher standard of justice to appeal to, God is also the judge hearing the case. And after reviewing all of the evidence, God the judge announces the verdict and says to us, I declare you to be righteous before this court. There is nothing outstanding between you and me. All debts have been paid. All punishments have been served. You and I are in a right relationship with one another. It reminds me of what the baseball commissioner said to Alex Rodriguez recently after A-Rod served his suspension last year. 
The commissioner said, I now consider you to be in good standing with Major League Baseball. Why? Because, because Alex had served his punishment. Justice had been done. And now the record is clear again. He's in good standing again in the league. But, but how can God say this to us? How, how can that be justice? Because we haven't served our sentence. We still stand before the court guilty. Paul has made that clear. How can God say we're righteous, that we're in good standing before God? It's kind of like if you go to a nice restaurant, you have a, a delicious steak, a few drinks, some dessert, and then you ask for the bill and you know it's going to be a doozy after all that. <laughs> and the server hands you the bill and it says paid in full. <laughs> and you think, oh, <laughs> yeah, where is this place? Paul's telling us. You, you think, how can that be? Who, who paid it? Well, to find out, let's look at the second image that Paul gives us, the image of redemption from a slave market. Verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. This word redemption in Paul's day meant to buy someone out of slavery. Let's say you, you see this, this poor child in the image um, be, being auctioned off as a slave to be separated from her mother. And she's crying and her mother's crying and, 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 and your heart breaks and, and suddenly you know what you must do. You buy them both, mother and daughter. You pay the price for them and then you give them back to one another and you give them their freedom together. You have redeemed them from slavery. That's the word that the Old Testament uses for what God did when he rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh would not let God's people go, and so God sent a destroying angel to change Pharaoh's mind and to spring his people free. And to pay the price for that rescue, God instructed each family on the eve of their rescue to take a lamb, to slaughter it, to eat it, to put the blood over their doorposts so that the destroying angel would know to pass over that house so that they could live and could go free. That's redemption. That's a price being paid so that you can be freed um, from slavery. And our redemption came by Jesus Christ, Paul tells us. In him, God paid the price so that we can go free. This becomes even more clear when we look at the third image which is the image of the religious temple. Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Temples are places of sacrifice. And in the Jewish temple, there was a very special place where God himself dwelt in the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies. And in that place, there was an ark. It was a special piece of furniture made of gold. And it was flanked by two golden angels. And this was the place where God's presence dwelt. And the cover of the ark was called the mercy seat. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest would go into that inner place, into God's presence with blood and would, would sprinkle that blood from a sacrifice on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people. And that blood was called the propitiation. Now don't worry, that's the last fancy religious word we're going to learn today. Propitiation, it, it means two things. First, a propitiation 
wipes away sin. It, it, it takes away guilt. And second, propitiation turns aside God's wrath and anger toward that sin. And these two are related because when the sin has been taken away, when the offense toward God has been taken away, there's nothing left to punish. There's, there's nothing to be angry about anymore. Now, in our verse, Paul says that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And that's a blanket expression the translators use because they aren't sure exactly how to translate this Greek word. It, it can either mean the mercy seat where the propitiation happens or it can mean the propitiation itself. But either way, it's very good news. God presented Christ as our mercy seat. God presented Christ as our propitiation through the shedding of his blood. Either way, it's utterly amazing. Because normally, it's human beings who offer the propitiation. Normally, if we've done something to offend God, we try to find a way to make it right. We, we say we're sorry. We, we bring a gift or, or a sacrifice. We promise to do better, whatever we think we could do. And then we hope and we pray that God accepts our propitiation because it's not a given that he will. But there's no doubt, there's no uncertainty here with Christ. Because in this case, God himself offered the propitiation to himself. God offered himself through Jesus Christ. And so do you think the sacrifice is acceptable? <laughs> of course it is. Christ's death, Christ's sacrifice was good enough to wipe away our sin and guilt and to turn aside God's wrath and anger. Christ's death on the cross was good enough to pay the price so that we could go free from captivity and from the debts we owed. Christ's death on the cross was good enough to fulfill the punishment that we owed for the crimes we had committed. And so God the judge is now able to say, you are justified. You are in good standing. All is now right between me and you. There's nothing between us. Through Jesus Christ, that's how God demonstrated his righteousness. Paul says it this way in verse 25. God this, did this through Christ to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, right? That was part of the problem. God hadn't done justice. He hadn't sent his army to punish Jews and Gentiles who'd rebelled against him and wrecked his kingdom. But now, through Jesus Christ, God has demonstrated his righteousness at the present time, Paul continues, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How did God demonstrate his righteousness? In Jesus Christ, God threw himself under the bus. In Jesus Christ, God demonstrated his justice, punishing every crime, meeting out the penalty that justice demanded. But in Jesus Christ, God also demonstrated his love and mercy, taking that penalty on himself so that we wouldn't have to face it. And so we see that, that God's righteousness is not only just, it is also merciful. 
And it is not only just and merciful, it is also sacrificially and personally loving because God himself takes the penalty on himself so that others don't need to pay it. What wisdom. What self-sacrifice and tender concern to solve the problems of the world in this way. That's why we worship him. But meanwhile, back in the church in Rome, to whom Paul is writing this letter, the Jews and Gentiles were arguing and wrangling with one another about who was better and who God liked better. Thankfully, that never happens in churches today. (laughs) But remember, we talked about this two weeks ago. The Jews thought they were better because they were God's chosen people. They, They had God's law. They knew lots more about God. But the Gentiles thought they were better because they were more powerful and sophisticated in Rome. They were the majority there. And they've no doubt resented the Jews' holier-than-thou attitude. And and so so this is going on, this back and forth. And, And so what does Paul have to say about this? Well, in verses 22 and 23, Paul says, There is no difference between Jews and Gentiles, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by God's grace. In other words, it's a level playing field now. Nobody gets points for the religious background. Everybody gets treated exactly the same based on God's grace. Which God has freely extended to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul concludes in verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Whether you've been in church your whole life or you just barely think you're starting to believe in Jesus. Nobody has anything to boast about. We're all recipients of God's grace. Verses 29 and 30. Is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised, the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, through that same faith. So, if any of us are going to boast at all, let's boast only in how great our God is, who, who proved himself righteous, doing justice, doing right, dealing rightly with wrong, yet at the same time, proving loving and merciful keeping his promise to bless and and save the world through his chosen people, the Jews, because it's through them that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for the salvation of the world. So, are you in on this? Are you in on this? (laughs) Paul says repeatedly that the way you receive God's righteousness, the way you are justified, the way you are redeemed, the way you receive propitiation for your sins is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is adamant that you don't earn God's favor by by going back to the religious rule book and, and trying to keep God's laws, by being religious. No, you receive God's favor by grace when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Give Jesus your trust. Give Jesus your allegiance, God says, and know that I have taken care of everything else. If you'd like to do this this morning to put your faith in Jesus, um, I'd love to talk to you.
about it after the service. Let's respond now um, by expressing our faith by singing this last song, I Believe.